Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, we are talking with Trung Fan. He is a writer with Workweek and Bloomberg. He is the creator and co-founder of Barely AI. He is doing a bunch of different things. He's also working on a TV series. He is a one-year veteran of Carving His Own Path. I'm excited to dive into his story. We've both spent a considerable time abroad in Asia. I want to dive into that as well. Welcome to the podcast, Thank you, dude. Thank you. Where, where's the path? I can't see it. We're, we're without a path right now. I'm so. I'm looking at the. So for the listener, for the listeners here, I'm in this Riverside app, and I see like the cover of Paul's book, and just says the pathless path. And then when you actually break down those words, without a path, path, I'm like, this is the most confusing shit in the world. <laughs> so, People like it though. I don't know. Okay. All right. So uh, it's just. Uh, it's like you know what it reminds me of, and I'm not saying this is in a positive way. Have you seen Forrest Gump when there's like the, yeah. the plastic bag just floating in the wind? This is what this feels like, but in a good way. Because like I'm all for floating in the wind as a plastic bag. The bagless bag. <laughs> Sequel. <laughs> No, dude, so, so I had no idea you lived in Asia. I, I'm hijacking this interview. Where'd you live? <laughs> Hold on. I, <laughs> I, have a, I have one scripted question I ask okay. all my guests. Okay, okay. <laughs> what are the stories and scripts you grew up with around work when you were growing up? We're okay, going to answer that, and then okay. we can use that to talk about living in Asia, because I think that's important. That, well, it's also very related to, see, like, even when I even when I rudely cut you off, it all comes back together, because <laughs> we're like that bag in Forrest Gump. It's just flying around. It's going to find its way. Uh, Asian, man. Asian parents, dude. Like, you can guess right now. What did my parents want me to be when I grew up? Just, just guess. Doctor, lawyer, academic, uh, Engineer. Professor. You nailed it, dude. Yeah, so... I went, uh, my, my older brother is a doctor. Uh, uh, I went to university pre-med and then I almost failed calculus in the first semester because I was getting hammered every day and the class was at eight o'clock AM. So I'm like, I got to find a major where all the classes start at noon. And sure enough, it was history and sociology. So I just, I, I cannot, I'm not exaggerating. I literally set my schedule based on the time that the classes start. And like that, that's how I picked my major. So I Dude. dropped out of pre-med. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the answer. This is very resonant. I I had this uh, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. lab I had in science. Um, I th- or I forget what it was, biology or something. And it was like, there were like four people in it because nobody wanted something that late on a Friday. But th- I just like did not want to get up in the morning. So I'd go straight from the lab to the bar. It was great. That's a way, <laughs> I mean, that that's a no brainer. Like if you're going to have to go to 8 a.m. versus 5 p.m., it's like, what difference does it make? When you're in your late uh, teens or early 20s, your circadian rhythm won't even get you. You shouldn't be waking up before eight anyways, man. So I, w- I went to a big public school in the States and it was mostly oriented around uh, partying and socializing. Do you think people are undervaluing just like screwing around and having fun in your early 20s as sort of a way for later career success? I went so far on the other side of that that I'm, I'm there is... I mean, like we will both know people that, you know, yeah, finish school true. in three years and, and we're volunteering on the side. It's like, I'm not, that's not me. I also probably went a bit too far on the other side, like picking majors based on times that the classes start. Uh, but yeah, there's a happy middle ground. Right. And, uh, 
I mean, let's be honest, you don't learn anything in college. It's like you make buddies there and you fucking have a good time. Your prefrontal cortex isn't even developed yet. Like, who cares, right? <laughs> just like, <laughs> just have a good time. So the funny thing is I was doing a bit of research about you and your history. I was reading my own history, uh, Fon Boy Cho, and oh. uh, your great-grandfather. Have He's you read the Wikipedia legend. entry? Oh, I'm very familiar with that. I mean, I have his so books and like... I w- I want to read this, and I think you're pretty similar to him in some ways. So Fon admitted he did not understand the meaning of the text in great detail. He's talking about reading the Confucian texts at the time. But by age six, he was skillful enough to write a variant of the Analects that parodied his classmates, which earned him a caning from his father. Now, Come on, how, how like, do we like not father, see parallels like great, here? Like father, like great grand, <laughs> like great grandfather, like uh, grand, great grandson. Um, do you think he would be proud of your Twitter posting? Um, what I will say is this: so that's a great question, and uh, I don't want to, I don't want to have anybody I, rolling in their graves, including my ancestors. <laughs> uh, my answer would be yes, and I'll tell you why. So, like I his agree. claim to fame was. I mean, he literally tried to get the French kicked out of Vietnam. Like, he went to Japan and procured weapons and was involved in a plot that, well, frankly, it killed a bunch of French colonialists, right? Like, if the French consider him a terrorist. But in Vietnam, he's a national hero, obviously. Um, um, the whole point being, he knew the power of ideas, right? And this is why he wrote, uh, if you look at any type of textbook or history book about ninth, late 19th century Vietnam, early 20th century Vietnam, like his books and writing will be at the top of those lists because they, he was giving, because Vietnam's a very proud country and uh, for thousands of years, it's been under the, like, the influence of China, right? Like China's the, the massive neighbor to the north and Vietnam, actually, I've talked about this before, but like I live in Canada and we're like America's hat. So like I understand like in my blood what it feels like to be like like this smaller brother nation. And uh, so like his whole point was like, you know, Vietnam does have this very rich history, but it's always been encroached by other powers. And he just wrote very vocally about, you know, Vietnam should just carve out and make very clear that these are our borders and like this is our history and our people. And uh, the influence at the time in the uh, late 19th century was Japan, right? Japan had woken up uh, with the Meiji Restoration uh, uh, and been like, they sent officials to Germany and America. It's like, we need to westernize our country or we're going to get gobbled up by them. And uh, my great-grandfather looked at Japan as a model. But the mistake he made with Japan was Japan wasn't interested in lifting up all Asian people. They're interested in becoming the hegemon in the region, which is why we had World War II, uh, or specifically in the Pacific. But anyways, the reason why I say, to answer your question, why I think he'd be proud is he knew the power of ideas. And this is, the, Twitter is, as we know, we're both on there quite a bit. Uh, the amount of politicians, media figures, influential people on Twitter it is like the fastest way to move information and influence uh, minds. Like even something as small as like recently we see this like uh, generative AI war. Like where is where is Sundar Pichai answering back with Bing? He's literally putting out a Twitter thread, right? Like it just shows you the power of this platform. And um, even even though we all know we can joke about it, it's like grossly under monetized and like whatever's happening uh, right now under Elon is like a totally different question entirely. Like we could that'd be a whole episode. Uh, but yeah, I think he would be proud. Yeah, the <clears throat> it's pretty fascinating that time period. He's he's like hanging out with Sun Yat-sen, yeah. who was huge and in influencing. He, he's interesting. I spent a lot of time in Taiwan. He's the one person that both that Taiwan both and China yeah. 
who are exactly like, see him as like a great leader. Well, they see him uh, as a father then figure they, of, of. Then they uh, split off. Twentieth century. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Like <laughs> that. That's such a great point, I, man. I love that we're going down this road because I'm very passionate about this stuff. I really don't get to talk about it on podcasts. But you're right, man. It's like he's a fascinating figure, Sonia Sen, and the fact that my great grandfather had an opportunity to speak with. The, he was a Republican. He was the person that brought the Republican fervor to the the literally landmass of China. And then, like you said, obviously Taiwanese look up to him and uh, very influential. Yeah, I sp- I moved. I did like the career thing. I was a little better in school and like trying to optimize the grades and do all that stuff. And uh, worked in strategy consulting for ten years. But eventually uh, went to uh, Taiwan when I was thirty three. 32 and changed so much for me just living outside of the u.s i wonder if that was a similar thing for you i know it was a little weird going to taiwan vietnam because your parents were like why would you go back right and i know that's a very common theme um with immigrant parents and sort of disconnecting from their country when they left um how were you thinking about going back what drove you to go back yeah, well, I'll address your question exactly because when people do ask me, should I live abroad at a young age? I actually say, okay, if you want to spend, a, there's two ways to look at it in my eyes. If you want to just stick around for a year, teach English in Southeast Asia, cool, do that. But if you're like in your mind, you really have no idea what you're going to do and like you can go there and just try to quote unquote figure it out, you're actually better off in a mini version of what you did. Get some Western skills because that way, and and, and like, if, listen, if you work at McKinsey for two years and you go to Asia, they're going to make you like VP of operations, right? And uh, and you'll get paid way better. And you can actually, though that's what I mean. It's like I went there without a plan. It's like I couldn't even get a job teaching English because this was very yeah. humbling. Because uh, it turns out nobody in people. Vietnam. Exactly. They don't want same thing another Vietnamese kid, right? It's like that's the entire point. You nailed it. It's like, so that was extremely humbling. Like the only job I was actually qualified to do at a university because I had a, history and sociology degree was to teach English in Vietnam. It's like literally the only skill I had. And I couldn't even do that because they didn't, they wanted a white person. I mean, this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand too about Asia. We don't have to go deep about the race questions in North America and all that, but it's like, no, happy to, you you truly have to live abroad to understand. It's like Vietnam is 99% Vietnamese. Japan is 99% Japanese. You understand how retrograde the view of like the majority of these countries are to other races. They like, it, it's just like this. This is what to me when I see this wokeism movement happen is like you guys don't understand. Like go go to Southeast Asia, go to East Asia, go to uh, South Asia. That's half the world. Think, look at how they treat uh, people of different quote unquote races. A lot of right? progress yeah. to be had. <laughs> There's a lot of progress to be had, right? So I think to answer your question, it's like is important. Yeah, it gives you so much perspective because. Yes, of course, everybody should be treated, uh, you know, everybody should be given an opportunity and, uh, uh, to succeed in this world and treat it equally. But what you have to remember is like, looking at North America, like Canada and, and USA, yes, massive problems. But you compare it to a lot of these other countries and regions, it's like, it's night and day. Like, you can't even compare. Like, I have a lot of relatives in, in, in Vietnam, which just straight up, they just have never met anyone that's not Vietnamese, right? Like, 100%, like rural Vietnam. They wouldn't even know how to interact. They hold every single like negative view you could think of of, of other races because they just literally have never met them. And and uh, I think it's a very th- I think it's probably one of the more important lessons uh, living abroad. Actually, yeah, my my wife is Taiwanese, so I am the white person that her family hangs out with. Yeah, I'm the the single person. <laughs> so you 
everything you do, you're representative of the other billion plus like uh, uh, Caucasians, right? I represent the Americans. Yeah. Hundred <laughs> percent, um, man. But yeah, it's it was a mind blowing experience. Also, I mean, you can know other people live different ways, but until you live in the mix of different ways of living, I mean, just simple stuff like riding a scooter around Saigon, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's crazy. It's a completely different way of orienting. It's a different energy. Walking around the streets is so different. I I've only visited Vietnam for um, four days, but okay. Um, but you got the energy. Yeah. You, you, you feel the yeah. There's like an yeah, energy it's, to it. It's wild, and there's more young people. It's like this future optimistic energy. It's a little crazy. It's it's um and it's extremely Vietnamese. Like ta- yeah. Taiwan is 99 percent Taiwanese, so they're yeah. in such a bubble of their own cultural scripts and ways of thinking about the world too. It's you sort of start picking up all these different ways of thinking. Um, yeah, what was that like for you? I mean, obviously there was some um, cultural stuff for you, probably getting a new perspective on your own culture. I think um, because prior to moving there, I'd been there with my family a couple of times, which probably isn't surprising, right? Asian parents bring their yeah. kids back. Um, but I think the interesting thing, and I mean, this wouldn't be surprising to you, is because my family, they left before the fall of Saigon, right? So they hold very negative views about the Vietnamese Communist Party fairly. And... Uh, and to your initial point is like, well, how do, not only like wh- what do immigrant parents feel when their kids go back, but like to the country that it's not in a positive way that they left, right? Like their memory, even though like my great grandfather's a hero in Vietnam, like he has a very interesting history of the Communist Party. So they tried to bury his uh, legacy for decades because he was an intellectual rival to Ho Chi Minh. So he was buried, his reputation was buried for decades. So it's not like, like what, what I want to make clear is like, is my great-grandfather very prominent and influential figure, but this, it's not like we come from wealth in Vietnam. Like everything was taken and and his reputation has gone through ups and downs. And that all ties back to what you've said. Is like, I think the main thing for me was going back there and it had nothing to do with the culture. It's just, like, it, it, it's just about my age and the time and, and what you kind of initially asked, like should people live in Asia at that time or live abroad? Well, at their young age, the main lesson for me was like, I'm glad I did what I did because now with obviously, you know, with a kid and like settled down, it's like, it would never happen again. Right. Like that's like, my frame is not really cultural. It's just like looking at the arc of my life, knowing that I would never be able to do that again. And that's what I look back at. And I, I met my now wife there. Uh, and that's obviously super important, uh, but the takeaway kind of being like, I don't look at it like, Oh, I had this like cultural awakening. I'm just like, I would never be able to do what I did for those yeah. five years ever again. You meet a lot of interesting people, too, in these environments, right? These expat worlds. And I know that's injected some of your writing. Talk to me about, like, who are some of the people? Like, it's wild, the people you meet living in these countries as expats. I mean, dude, you lived in Taiwan. You've been in Asia. The the funny thing about the expat world is it's a small sliver, right? But they're all in... And you'll get the full spectrum. You'll get... You'll get literally just backpacking bums. You'll get uh, teachers and then you'll get local CEOs of those companies. And the thing is, they all hang out at the same place, right? Yeah. There's like the expat bars, like it's a well-known trope. Uh, you probably know and you've been, uh, I'm sure there's many expat bars in Taiwan uh, or Taipei. And, uh, and, and the funny thing though, I'll say about expats is this, you nailed it. There's so many different characters and 
the thing that I like though is that if you're an expat in Saigon, you're one degree removed from like the expat community in Bangkok. Like you hit the ground and somebody will know somebody there. It's like, yeah, yeah go here, same. hook up with this person. They're going to party. <laughs> and like, no matter where I went in Asia, it's like, it's just one, it's like one layer of group of people. It's like, it's like kind of going to university again, right? It's like, oh yeah, I met with uh, Danny in Shanghai and then I met with like uh, uh, Tim down in Bangkok. It's like, you know, that, that feeling. So, 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 so two things I'd say, we, uh, number one, you, you, we touched on is like, there's a whole spectrum of interesting characters and they are truly interesting characters uh because uh from the tv show that uh, uh that i'm working on i'm still in development hell unfortunately but we we have done some episodes that's the positive like produced them uh, uh there's there's a couple lines in there and they're taken from actually hemingway so hemingway was famously an expat in paris and uh with uh, he had a whole crew over there scott fitzgerald who wrote the great gatsby uh a bunch of the artists they're all just hanging on paris right but then he, his description of expat life in Paris in the 1920s, he's basically talking about, I get drunk every day, I don't do anything, and I like have sex with uh, random people. Like that, That's his story of being an expat. Like That is what a lot of expat life is like in East Asia, or anywhere, really, right? It's like you're, you've been derooted from where you grew up. And I think specifically in Southeast Asia, uh, I love your thoughts on this. The framing that we did around the TV show about expats is in Southeast Asia, if you end up as an expat in like Saigon or Cambodia or Thailand or even like the Philippines, like you're not like, you didn't go to Harvard Business School, right? You went to Harvard Business School, you'd be in Tokyo or you'd be in Hong Kong or Shanghai or or, or Seoul. You know what I mean? Like there's tiers of cities in Asia and like the ones, the expats I hung around, these were not the best and the brightest that were offered by the world, right? This is like people that are truly running from stuff. And, and there's actually, there's, a, there's an economic reason why that happens too. It's like, it's much cheaper to live in Cambodia and Thailand and Vietnam. It's extremely expensive to live in Seoul and Tokyo. Like you need to be a high, you know, a high flying executive to really live it up there. Well, not really live it up. You can still, you can still live yeah. pretty well in Hong Kong, but you, you know what I mean, right? It's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, I think it's changed. So I think you were there early. Um, and I think there's the difference between expats sponsored by their companies, yes. right? And uh, digital nomad entrepreneurs, people who are like long-term travelers. There's been such a dramatic increase. When did you leave being there? Yeah, 20- I, I, I probably way before, 20, uh, 2008, 2012. I, I probably, it blew yeah, up probably so, five or six years later. Yeah, the last 10 years have been such an explosion of people like me, like digital yeah. nomads. I didn't drink when I when I was in Asia for three years, um, which probably, yeah, that probably seems crazy to you. It's I also crazy. didn't, I hung out with like other digital nomads and a lot of locals because yeah. I met my wife so early um, after moving there. So it was a bit of a different experience, but I think it's evolved. And these countries have gotten a lot richer in the last 10 years. Yes. So there's a lot of local stuff that's happening where a lot of locals are in, intertwined with the entrepreneurial digital nomad co-working ecosystems. I think you'd be surprised going back. Like I went to Saigon in 2019. Okay. And that's recent. It was such an interesting mix of like locals, entrepreneurs, digital nomads, and I think it's evolved. Um, but I definitely get what you mean. But yeah, it's just so much easier to meet people now. Like smartphones changed everything. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, when we went to when I went to Vietnam, two thousand eight, it was like barely anyone was on Facebook in Vietnam, right? 
totally, wow. totally game changed now. Hey, but to your yeah. point, I, I think yeah, exactly. My description of what I just said is a very time capsule at that time. So I will caveat for 2008, 2010 region. And, uh, yeah, I think your frame is correct. Though. Like it's pre Instagram, like it's way pre TikTok, obviously, and uh, and smartphone hadn't really penetrated the country yet. Like iPhone had only been out a year by the time I'd been there. So uh, yeah, it was it was interesting, man. It was um, uh, again. I'll go back to the initial thought. It's like I'm just happy I did it for that time period because I could not do it again. But it's amazing you did it in your early 30s, man. Like that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was a different perspective. I think I had more stuff to reflect on. It was like a slower, more contemplative um, reflection. At, and yeah, I was kind of lost in my life and trying to be found, which is a, a classic script in Asia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> contemplative. Um, great, great word, by the way. I haven't heard that one in a while. Um, yeah, th- check this out. Vietnam, 2010 GDP or 2009 GDP was 106 billion. Today it's 366 billion. That's wild. It, still, think, still one seventh uh, of Apple. <laughs> <laughs> no, like literally, like that's how, that's how I look about how I remember. Like this is like a tweet thread. It's like lesson: Vietnam should have bought Apple. Yeah, or like Apple <laughs> should have bought, bought Apple Vietnam. early. <laughs> I'm stealing that. Um, that's. Awesome. So in Vietnam, though, you wrote for this paper. That's sort of like an accidental thing. You, I mean, you had no other options, but exactly. Did, when did you realize like writing was a thing either you liked or could be? Oh, I've always. Hey there, it's Paul. I just wanted to take a second and thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to support more, I'd love if you'd share this podcast episode or the podcast as a whole with one other friend. Sharing it like that is the easiest way you can help me grow the podcast, get better guests, and help me continue on this long game. Next, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'd probably enjoy my book. You can check out my book, The Pathless Path, which has now sold over 40,000 copies. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com. And finally, if you're looking to find the others on unconventional paths, I've started a community the Pathless Path community, where you can find others on unconventional paths. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com slash membership. All those links you can find below and back to the episode. I've always, yeah. great question. I've always liked writing. I um, actually went quote unquote viral or like was pretty, I wrote a pretty popular blog on my guild. Trunkstunna. Yeah, Trunkstunna, about partying. Uh <laughs> And like it was weird. As I couldn't first find taste. it. I searched the. Web. Oh, I deleted it. That stuff is like. <laughs> I was like, you know what? This should not last. This should not be lasting. The, uh, <laughs> this is not meant to be uh, archived on the internet. Um, I mean, there's nothing super wrong with it. It was just like really immature, uh, just partying jokes. Like, I mean, I wouldn't mind looking at it back now, but like, I'm sure in 2010 when I wasn't able to get a job or 2009, I'm like, you know what? It maybe it's time to pull the plug on this thing. But uh, looking back, I probably should have just pursued that from the beginning, uh, the writing. Because as you know, with uh, your kind of ventures and media ventures, man, the number one thing for audience building is time. Like, there's yeah. only so many new subscribers you can game. get a week, right? So many new followers you can get every week. It's like the reality is that it's just time. It's like it's like the Morgan Housel quote from about Warren Buffett in the Psychology of Money, one of the greatest books ever. He says Warren Buffett's like his skills investing, but his secret is time, right? Like that's just it. It's just. You have to let time happen. That's what I regret the most, actually. It's like for the, if anybody ever asked me about 
you know, b- building in public, uh, media stuff. I'm like, I just wish I'd started earlier. Um, again, it's not for everyone. Like, you have to want to go through the ups and downs uh, for a decade plus uh, because the fruits of all that labor is going to wait at the end, right? It's like, it's all, yeah. nothing happens in the first, I mean, you know this, you're a book publisher, yeah. you run a podcast. <laughs> it's like, nothing, everything is at the end is where the payoff is. And you just have to be willing to wait that long. Um, but yeah, I, I've known because I wrote uh, this blog in university. Uh, and uh, I mean, it was a fraction of the kind of distribution I get now on Twitter. But like, I just, it was cool, right? You're walking around campus, like, yo, Trump, funny blog. And I'm like, oh, amazing dopamine. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, the original uh, likes. Yeah, the original likes was somebody just pointing at you on campus. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Um, but yeah, I knew. And that's so, that was like, when I said that teaching and learning is my only skill, that's not actually true. Writing was my other skill. Like, uh, I'd, I'd say I've always been a pretty natural writer. And when I say that, it's because natural in the sense, of, I, you know how they always say, oh, write in your own voice? Like, that's what I've actually been doing, like, from the very yeah. beginning. I, I write in my You're own voice. You're great at that. Yeah, it's just like, I literally never did not do that. So I, I guess I never had, like, a apprehension about it. So th- that's a lot for a lot of people, the problem with writing in your own voice. Like, you're like, oh, what if my voice is stupid, right? It's like that. I never had that for some reason. And uh, so, yeah, I've been able to write um, pretty early. I can write, I mean, I can write, like, very, like, dry stuff too, right? So, which is what I had to do as an equity analyst, uh, ultimately, where I ended up in Vietnam. And then, uh, and listen, you're a consultant. You you know what it feels like to write that, that freaking, that soul-sucking, uh, like, industry analysis overview, the drivers, what are the key risks? Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I can I can pump out a twenty five page um, in depth research report on the economics of uh, I don't even know I could coffee. I can do let's the, just call let's call it rubber I and can, coffee. I can do that. Um, yeah, coffee. Let's break it down. We'll do the segments, the different regions. I did I did rubber and coffee while I was in Vietnam. That was funny. I, I know a lot more about rubber than I should. <laughs> um. But yeah, that that stuff's super helpful. I think you probably learned, I think from consulting, what I learned is like, I I feel kind of bad saying this, but I didn't really find fi- writing a book very hard because I'm very good at structuring lots right. of ideas. Um, I just, it's just a time thing. I just need to like go through the motions. Um, but yeah, for me a long time, I, I didn't think of myself as a writer either. Um, but I look back now and I'm like, Oh, you moron. You liked writing all these times. I just never thought of it as like a thing people yeah. do. Well, I mean, fair. It's also not easy to make a it, living. It wasn't right? for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Like our paths right now were literally not possible five years ago yeah. when I quit my job. Um, well, that's why everybody yeah, looks up to Ben Thompson, right? Like he was, I mean, he lives in Taiwan. He's like, you, you know, he's the OG. Him and, yeah, he's the OG. I don't know him. I used to just say I was the second. Um, most important newsletter writer in Taiwan. <laughs> a white newsletter writer in Taiwan. Nice. I love that. Um, yeah. What, um, how did you end up at uh, the hustle? So uh, when I left Vietnam, I did an MBA. Uh, so this is for, for, I guess a lot of your listeners are kind of career like ideas. It's like when I left Vietnam, I didn't have any, again, other than writing. And my experience there, which is not super valuable in North America, Vietnam, as you alluded to, is quite a small market. Uh, yeah. I went back and did an MBA as a one-year MBA as a way to integrate myself in North America's economy. Uh, I probably shouldn't have done that because it ended up costing, including the opportunity cost me 150 
uh, 200k and uh, looking back Brutal. unnecessary um, uh, but yeah that was my fortunately I was able to get a, a job in the states because Vancouver notoriously uh, for its cost of living and its housing pays awful like uh, for the average job there's just not a ton of industry here or there wasn't when I graduated. Even now, there's not a ton. I mean, it's primarily mining and real estate. There's a lot of tech here, but it's more engineer-driven, and they're just kind of stashing people. Like Seattle, I mean, Amazon just stashes people up here that can't get visas, right, to, to Seattle. And um, I was an engineer, but I ended up working, um, same skill as research, writing. I ended up working uh, for Kensho, which is a fintech company in Boston. And that was nice because I got into the U.S. market. And uh, the way I actually met, uh, uh, was got hooked up with the hustle was one of my coworkers, colleagues from Kensho was an early investor in the hustle. And he knew I had liked writing like uh, in my own voice comedically and obviously had this kind of finance business background. And he's like, yeah, you should just write these guys. So that's how I got linked up with the hustle. And the hustle, obviously when I was working there the move, once you start doing that, you just start to get on Twitter and being much more yeah. public and uh, I actually knew pretty quickly with Twitter that it was a game I could crack because in terms of humor, like uh, I, I do, I don't know, I don't know if any of my listeners follow me or if they don't, I like to do memes and really dumb jokes. And that's going, sure back to like, <laughs> going back to like the college thing, like like a, my blog was a little about partying and making jokes. It's like it's always been like uh, like my North Star. Uh, and so I was, I was watching Twitter. I'm like, oh, I saw who the big accounts were. I'm like, oh, I can do this. Like this is doable. <laughs> That's awesome. It, this is another parallel I found with a fun, fun boy show. Um, he passed his regional exams in 1900. However, he had no intention of pursuing such a career and only wanted the qualification to increase his gravitas. Going to keep yeah, living that, out those. Well, I hope you're not. I got the CFA, arrest, bro. The, like I also got the <laughs> CFA. Well, yeah, let, let, yeah, that's it, dude. First of all, amazing research, Paul. And uh, yes, he, uh, yeah, every let, let's go up to there and then let's just stop with the whole house arrest part. Yeah, yeah. Where, well, not only that, I mean, <laughs> the early the, rebel phase. We'll keep yeah. that going. Well, we'll we'll uh, we can finish it off for the listeners. Don't end up seeing the Wikipedia page. But uh, uh, my great grandfather. We'll we'll close this loop on his story. Was uh, he was sold out by Ho Chi Minh uh, as we as we alluded to that they're intellectual rivals. He was living in Shanghai, meeting with Sun Yat Sen, and uh, uh, the, he, Ho Chi Minh sold him out to the French to eliminate a rival. The French wanted to execute my great grandfather, but uh, they realized that it would have created a martyr, so they just put him in house arrest for the last fifteen years of his life, and he died at the beginning of World War One, oh, World War Two. Sorry. Key lesson is become so valuable that they can't get rid of you. Yeah, you. If you if 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 you if you are a martyr, that protects you. That is a, that is a good lesson. Um, writing every day. So I interviewed Steph Smith uh, yesterday. Um, she's awesome and she's yeah she's amazing uh but even she is like she's incredible produces so much she's like i don't know how trung did it every day just like day after day i appreciate you (laughs) day after day just like executing shipping and um putting out amazing newsletters what was that like because that i mean that seems like it kind of battle tested you and the uh so that year is, I'll tell you, when people do ask me, it was just like a confluence of events. Uh, some people left, uh, COVID happened, uh, and um, it was just, it became difficult for a little while to hire enough people. 
and I just recently moved over from Trends, which is the Hustle's uh, kind of research group, into uh, uh, the Daily Newsletter, which is the one that I'm sure a lot of uh, the listeners here read, which is the, I think the list is up to 2 million now. I was writing at the time to about 1.2 to 1.5 million readers. And yeah, the thing about Daily Newsletters, and I tell people this, whenever they ask me to start, like, hey, should I start a newsletter? I'm like, just be sure, whatever time commitment you choose, like just know, like just add an extra day. If you if like if you're doing three days a week, that's really a four to five day job. If you're doing if you do five days a week, that's a full on seven day job because you never stop thinking about it. And what happened that year was well, just a confluence of events. We just well, unfortunately we had some readers, a writers leave, and then COVID happened where I just had so much time on my hand. So I, I it was literally a blur for about I think nine nine months, almost close to a year. Uh, I mean, we have editors, copy editors. We had a team uh, uh, to uh, structure everything. But it's like the actual writing, their days, yeah, they're almost close to a year where it was like every single day uh, was writing this entire email. And it, 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 uh, to be honest, I was burnt, uh, quite burnt out by the end, which is uh, which is the end being uh, when we were ultimately acquired by The Hustle, immediately able to hire, right? And again, I had a lot of great editors, uh, but they also had other jobs to do too. We were just a bit short-staffed. <laughs> so it wasn't like they could just chip in uh, and write because they had other responsibilities, right? Yeah. So you were all acquired by HubSpot. Um, you eventually decided to to leave. What was the thought process of going on your own? And had you thought about going on your own or did the acquisition sort of uh, speed up something like that? Going solo, definitely uh, uh, always have... I mean, there are portions of my life. Like, I consider my early 20s kind of going on my own, as in like yeah. I really wasn't working for anyone. I just kind of exploring my interests. And uh, I mean, during that time we didn't talk about, was I, I did sell a film, film script to Fox. Like that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a comedic film writer. And I thought that was my in. But uh, uh, anyone that knows anything about Hollywood knows this shit is so difficult to break into. Like I, I have very few ins. I was fortunate enough that one of my uh, co-writers uh, uh, also was quite established in Hollywood, Vietnamese-American, uh, a guy named Vincent, a uh, great dude. But yeah, I always knew that. Because writing, as you know, is a quite an individualistic exercise, right? And I and all the things that you mentioned, there's so much tooling now and um, that really, the thing that really made me realize that I should just go fully solo was like building my own distribution. I'm like, okay, listen, if I can grow on Twitter and like, I know distribution's half the battle for anything. It's like, it took me a long time to realize uh, that distribution is literally 50% of the battle, right? Like you'll know this. It's like, you write anything, however much energy you put into writing that, you're gonna have to put the exact same into promoting it because no one else is gonna do it for you. And there's so much content out there. So when I finally came around to realizing that distributions have to battle and that I can actually build my own distribution, uh, I'm like, okay, well, that I can, I should definitely try to go solo or and, and, and truly write about things that I care about and uh, at the cadence I want. I think that that that's a benefit. Like I'm not writing five days a week anymore, six days a week. I'm not writing research reports about uh, topics that I literally actually don't care about. Right? Like it's like you yeah. said about your 25 page uh, reports. You can do them. <laughs> you just don't give a shit, right? So God, even if I got paid a hundred grand, I don't think I could muster just, up the energy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, I think that's when. I think I mean it's not gonna be shocking anyone that's listening is thinking about it. it's like. If you build your own distribution, like the, it, it's in your hands, right? Is um, uh, 
the trade-off you'd make with any larger publisher is like, oh, we can get you in front of eyeballs. That trade-off doesn't matter anymore. Or you just have all the leverage now, right? So, um, uh, yeah, that's how, I, that's how I think about it or thought about it. Yeah, so you, the mix of activities you're doing is really interesting. I mean, you're doing your newsletter, um, and I think you have uh, some distribution help with Workweek. Um, you're also writing for Bloomberg. Um, you've, you're working on an AI app. Um, you're doing the, the TV show script and you're also, uh, doing the NIA pod, which is, uh, super fun to listen to. Oh, um, nice, man. Yeah. I love, love those guys, Jack and Blah. <laughs> How do you think about the balance of all this? Um, we talked about the hustle five days a week. I, yeah. I, I kind of got myself in a position again where I kind of recreated all these obligations. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So, uh, uh, well, so for example, like on Bloomberg, I'm actually taking a bit of a break right now. Because uh, yeah. I just had to clear something off when I did the uh, Barely AI, uh, the app. And so the good thing about the app is uh, I knew that, so you, you know, you're dealing with advertisers through your existing newsletters or, or podcasts, is that I had advertisers that I didn't even use the product for. And I'm like, mm, I'm not crazy about that. I'm not saying that necessarily the product's bad or good. Uh, I, I just truly don't know, right? And I just... I just kind of wanted to be able to, sh- we'll say, it. I just wanted to show something that is very yeah. consistent with me. It's like, and like, I can just make, like, if you look at like my Twitter and how I shell barely, which is like for the listeners, it's a, it's an AI power research app is like, it's everything that you kind of see, but all in one place. Like it has reading tools, writing tools, uh, image generation, text image. Um, I guess the positioning wise, if we have to get McKinsey about it, it's like if people ask you, so, okay, why don't I just use like uh, Bing or OpenAI or ChatGPT? It's like, this is pure simplicity for us. It's like we're integrating it all into one place and we're making a lot of custom prompts. And uh, so we think uh, it's a UX differentiation uh, because I think at the end of the day, all these large language models are going to be commoditized and uh, everybody's going to have access to them. So it really becomes a question of distribution and, and user interface for uh, for different for consumer facing products, anyways. Um, but yeah, so I want I want I, I, I say all that as a preamble to if you search my name on Twitter and you punch in B E A R L Y barely. You'll just see how dumb my shills are. It's just purely just joke after joke after joke about like, hey, is this a good SaaS business? And it's like an arrow pointing all the way down, right? <laughs> it's like, hey, I made zero dollars last month. Uh, how do I, how do I multiply the MRR on that for the entire year? Right? It's like it's just like it's just jokes that you couldn't do if you're advertising a, another product, but it but it's just so consistent and uh, consistent with uh, my existing content and personality that people fucking love it like they just engage with it right there's and honestly it's just like i'm having a good time like i'm listen i obviously yeah. want to make money with barely like and it's not gonna take a lot like i need five thousand paying customers for a seven figure business but like the whole point is i'm actually trying to have fun right like i'm actually trying to have a good time and deliver value for people and if you enjoy that venn diagram amazing and so like to summarize to answer your question is like how do i look at it all the barely so i had to i had to drop something uh to do this new thing uh, but the new thing, which is this AI uh, app startup, is like very consistent with what I'm already doing. So I'm just trying to like, you know, you only have so much time every week, right? And and especially with a kid, you're just like, ah, my pie, the hours I can dedicate is quite restricted right now. So uh, if I can find a way just to shoehorn something into stuff I'm already doing, making jokes on Twitter, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, it's this, it's kind of like steering a cruise ship. You're like constantly tweaking the direction and you're like, trying to get closer and closer. 
It's also really weird, too, because once you're working on your own, you can literally do anything. You can yeah. launch a company. You can launch a newsletter. You can um, write for Bloomberg, right? And it's a bit overwhelming at first because you realize you can literally do anything. And like constantly tweaking and trying stuff is a challenge. Don't. Don't a, we get we got some kid noise in the background. Yeah, I am no, fully good. endorsing this. <laughs> I have a daughter. I have a daughter coming in two weeks. Um, this okay. episode well, will probably incredible, be live dude. This will be the last one. This will be the last one before your daughter comes. Last recording, yeah. Oh, um, amazing, dude! Congratulations, man. Thank you. But we are we are embracing children on this podcast. Yeah. Do okay. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, for the listeners, he didn't see, but I had to hit mute. My kid just literally came down and said he has to do number two. So you might hear him say, daddy, I'm done. But, uh, uh, no, I no. Well, it. you had a great, you had a great, what, yeah, you had a great tweet, Paul. Maybe that ties in. Yeah. Maybe that ties in. Go ahead. No, I just <laughs> want to say you had a great tweet about, and I fully agree with you. You said, I think I can't remember what I might've seen it in time. Uh, maybe I'm dreaming, but you said basically great thing about working for yourself is you take a vacation whenever you want. And it's like, Oh, want to take a vacation or take a weekend vacation. Yeah, it was you, I right? Think, yeah, it was. I, I took a vacation last week. We decided yeah, okay. on Monday to go away you. on yeah. Wednesday. Yeah. Um, oh, here's the best part. You, you get to take midweek vacations. You're off schedule vacation. Yes. It's incredible. Yeah. And I think um, it's funny how many people don't realize the degrees of freedom they have. Have you been able to lean into that or have you been just because well, it's your first year trying to go a little harder on the work stuff? Well, actually, what I'll say is like I've always been remote. So like... I, I I, I was able to walk into a situation I always wanted, as in even awesome. at my, my fintech startup and that, sorry, dude, I'll answer that question. I got to wipe his ass. You might want to meet that. I'll be right back. I love this. We're keeping it in. <laughs> All right. Hold on a second. I'll be right back. Oh. I love, that was the best answer to a question I've ever had. Cause I was asking how you lean into not working and I love the, yeah, I love this cause yeah, you can't do that if you're in the office, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I th- I, and is that- no. Sorry, I just want to answer. Yeah, I, uh, the part that I got cut off was um, uh, when I cut myself off. Uh, apologies. Was I had I was working remotely basically from 2015, even with the fintech startup I was at. So I've always had actually quite a few degrees of freedom, uh, and I knew that's what I wanted to keep doing moving forward. So like that was it's been. When COVID happened and the whole world came to like the world that I already started living in, I'm like, oh, like I was kind of waiting for that because I wanted to move back to Canada, which yeah. I did. I, I live in Vancouver now, oh, I but that. I still wanted access to the U.S. market. So like, listen, COVID, awful. But for the uh, the situation that I was in is like that had just kind of brought a lot of people into the world that I was already living in. Yeah, I was working remotely in a co-living house in the Canaries when the pandemic started. Oh, wow. And <laughs> I was like, I didn't really have to make any adjustments to my life. So it was a little, we- a little weird. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been amazing that more people can structure their lives like this. Um, how how have kids played a role in how you think about work now? I, I mean, I fully get the value of remote work. Uh, although what's, it's very interesting, right? Because... A lot of people actually don't like working at home and doing childcare because they don't think they can accomplish anything. So, like, I have friends that are like, they don't, they hate it. They hate remote work. Whereas for me, I'm like, oh, it's a lifesaver with my kid. I get to spend so much time with them. But actually, for a lot of people, they're like, no, well, you know, your job might be different. Like, I can write 
at midnight, right? If I wanted to, yeah, a lot of people, you, you got to be on the cadence of uh, the uh, of nine to five, how the corporate world's working. So I get why for them, they'd be like, yeah, working at home with your kid is awful, right? You know what I mean? But like, I'll, I'll do those days, I'll just play with my kid like the entire morning and then the afternoon and not even work until after 7 p.m. So uh, fortunate in that regard. I love that. Yeah. And do you try to have a structured work day? I'm I'm thinking about it more because my kid's going to go full-time school soon. So right now, uh, yeah. he's only doing half day. I know when he's full, full-time, it's like, okay, like I can actually start. In my mind, I'm like, I can accomplish a lot of things. But the reality is like, you know, you feel how, however many hours you give yourself is what you're going to, like in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, my, next year I'm going to be an animal. But then, I, but the reality is like, it's probably going to be not quite animal level, but it'll even be probably a little bit more than what I'm doing now. So I will try to structure a bit more uh, next year. Yeah. Do we have a book in your future? Uh, I don't, I mean, dude, you got a book. Uh, I, I, I don't think I'd want to sit down and deal with like if it if it did be self publishing because I, well, I've, I've I guess heard. your form of the book is um, yes yeah, self publishing is easier than people think so I'm happy to talk to you about that but I guess your form of the book is like the TV script and stuff that's yeah like, that's like the long that's like the long form like stuff that uh, you know a good it's just a great this is a great point to bring up about creating content is. Listen, it's easy to get the quick dopamine hits with the memes and uh, the uh, the dumb tweets, but um, you know you still want to leave something for posterity, right? You wanna you wanna put your effort into something that'll take a couple of years, like you did with your book. And um, yeah, I, I mean, the TV show is one of those things. I have some other long form stuff I'm working on, um, but yeah, I don't think a book is necessarily in my future. I don't think it's the highest leverage thing I can do. Yeah, it. It's the longer projects, though, like the TV script, the movie script you've done. I found, at least writing a book, there's just like the intrinsic value of that process was so rewarding, like so much yeah. better than the weekly newsletter I do. Do you get that same joy from writing hom- comedy humor? I do. I'll, I'll say what I, with my newsletter, what I'm trying to do now is like, uh, I'm trying to go, uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm trying to do where like every other week is like just a, a true banger. Whereas maybe the ones between is like you do less, you hold yourself to less of a time bar. So you can actually put the effort into the ones that, I mean, you know how this game works, right? It's super pointy. It's like the power law. You want ones to really hit and break through. And uh, no one can do every single week. I mean, Matt Levine can from Bloomberg because he's a freaking alien. He's an animal. Yeah. I like don't want to read people like Matt Levine or Morgan Housel. I'm just like, what? How? How are they so good? It's so, it's. I mean, yeah, Morgan's amazing too. Uh, with because uh, every time you re- leave one of his essays, you're like, oh, oh, this was like a punch in the face <laughs> of insights, right? Uh, but Levine is just like Levine's so good that any single one of his pieces would be the best ones I've ever written. He's doing it yeah. so often; it's almost diluting how good he is. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I I like that idea. If he released like one every six months, everyone would read it. Like, yeah, it there'd be, be like a news event. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What's next uh, for you and how you're thinking about the path? You're entering year two. Are you finding you're like getting your footing a little more and starting to see longer term visions or anything like that? Well, uh, I'm going to say something pretty corny, but uh, when I ever do it, get asked this. It's just, we love the corny. If you, if you go down the path, uh, listen, I mean, you know the Jack Butcher image, right? This is pointless. Yeah. It's just uh, one of the greatest graphics ever. You should put it up. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I know that these are long-term games. 
And so when you ask me what my plan is, is like there is no plan. It's like I'm I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I know I'm gonna send some tweets. I know I'm gonna hack away at an article for the end of the week, and I know I have my podcast on Tuesday. That's it. Those things are just gonna compound. I, I, I'm trusting time to do its work, and uh, obviously opportunities come, and they do come, right? As you well know, it's like you just start getting hit up with opportunities left, right, and center as you go on this journey. So there's no master plan. I just know opportunities are gonna come. If one of them just changes everything, amazing. If not, I know the path that I'm on right now is going to compound to something amazing anyways. I love that. Yeah. Finding finding work you like doing and can do over long term is such a uh, superpower in today's world. And oh, funny dude, enough, are, this... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you know David Senra from the Founders Podcast? Yeah, he I, he was on uh, this podcast a few, oh. a few times ago. Yeah. So you know David's whole thing, right? David is... Uh, He's he's literally living this thing, and every time I message him every now and then, like with new ideas I have, and he literally just goes, "Will you be doing this for ten years?" I'm like, "No." I was like, "Okay, that's all I need to hear, right?" That's all. Yeah. He's like, "He's that's the, so good at the long game." Yeah. Um, no, it's beautiful, yeah. dude. It's beautiful. So like, that's the that's the best framing. Is like, I, you know, I'll, I'll I'll just steal David's uh, quote. It's like, "Will you do this for ten years? If not, you should probably reconsider it." Because all the yeah. all the gains we talked about is going to be at the end. Yeah, my my podcast listenership just went five x in the last um, three months, um, and I've been doing it for five years. <laughs> do you do you have a do you know what a, a, a to a, to attribute it to? The long game. Yeah, comp- I think like compounding it maybe. all compounds. Like I've got more attention from the book and more followers. People finding it. I'm getting better at interviewing people, better guests. Um, but yeah, it's it's all just staying the in the game. Dude, I love it, man. I love it. Where since you're going to stay in the game and people are going to be listening to this years from now, the uh, the Evergreen. Path Podcast. Um, where can people where can people find you and learn more? Um, Twitter is the easiest at Trung T Fan. Uh, you can see my newsletter there if you want to subscribe. And uh, really funny tweets shilling uh, barely dot AI. That's a uh, pun intended. B E A R L Y dot AI. Uh, but yeah, the, the Trung T Fan has everything. I love it. Rooting for you, man. Keep going and uh, excited to see what you continue to create. I appreciate you, man. We, we, we'll do another one in a couple of years when all the compounding has picked up for both of us. Yeah, it'll be, I'll be, we'll be sharing kid lessons as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. Really appreciate the time. All right. See you, man. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations, and if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it, and you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So... Grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.